supported in part through an unrestricted educational grant from Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals. Thank you so much for joining our COVID-19 webinar series. I'm Neha Dengayach, your moderator for the day, and we are going to talk about lessons that we have learned about COVID-19 survivorship. From long COVID to post-intensive care syndrome, we have millions of COVID-19 survivors across the world. And there are lots of questions about what this, is, this can mean for care as we, as we continue to grapple with COVID-19 throughout the world. And uh, I am going to also share a quick piece of information with you. So while we see uh, David Petrino, um, an expert uh, physical therapist, researcher, uh, scientist who was supposed to, supposed to join us on the webinar, he, he has an emergency. He's not going to be able to join us. But Jenna Tosto, who is also a physical therapist, clinician, scientist, she is, uh, she is joining us presently. Um, and before, uh, I'm going to give everybody perhaps a couple of minutes so we have more participants log on. And then we'll do a round of introductions with our awesome panelists. My name is Dr. Wes Ely, and I am an intensivist at Vanderbilt University in the Nashville VA. And I've spent the last 20, 25 years of my life studying uh, the neck up uh, in terms of delirium, coma, and problems related to sedation and management of sepsis patients that end up with long-term cognitive impairments such as an acquired dementia. And just last week, we published a 2,100 patient study of COVID ICU patients related to delirium and coma. So very much thankful to be here today with all of you. Thank you. And Dylan, you wanna go next? Sure, good afternoon. Thank you for the uh, invitation. My name is Dylan Westman. I'm a cardiologist and undersea medical officer in the United States Navy. Uh, most of my career has been spent at uh, Naval Medical Center San Diego. I uh, was very involved with graduate medical education there, including five years as uh, fellowship program director. Uh, currently, I'm serving as the department head for undersea medicine at Naval Medical Research Center, which is in Silver Spring, Maryland. And uh, one of the other hats I wear in the Navy is uh, the specialty leader for Navy cardiology. So I'm sort of the point person when our Surgeon General or Bureau of Medicine has a cardiology related question or concern gets directed to me first. So I've been involved in discussions about Navy policy regarding return to duty after COVID-19 infection. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. And, and Jenna, you wanna go next? First thing, thanks so much for having me. Uh, Jenna Tosto Mancuso here. I am a physical therapist at the Abilities Research Center at Mount Sinai. I am also uh, in participating in a large role in the development of the rehabilitation program for patients with post-acute COVID syndrome or long hauler syndrome. Uh, I work alongside Dr. David Petrino. Thank you so much. As you can see, we have a fantastic panel lined up. And what we're going to do is start with the uh, with Dylan, you want to show us some slides and talk about the cardiac complications uh, and what that means for long COVID and how do athletes get back to or return to play after COVID-19? Sure. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, I prepared some slides uh, to help guide the discussion and also to provide a, a resource for um, the audience and others who might uh, check this out online. I asked that Chess make these slides available to everyone. Also, my email will be included at the end, so uh, I can send that to you directly if needed. Uh, again, I am a physician in the United States Navy, but this afternoon I'm acting uh, as a civilian, so 
The views expressed here are my own and do not reflect those of the Navy, the DOD, or U.S. government. Next slide, please. Uh, I also have no relevant financial relationships to disclose. Next slide, please. So early on in the, the COVID-19 pandemic, we recognized that there are multiple cardiovascular complications, uh, which is sort of summarized in this illustration here, uh, including chest pain with abnormal EKG, which could uh, har be a harbinger of acute coronary syndrome. We also recognize that there's heart failure due to cardiogenic shock, uh, pulmonary embolism, and uh, probably more germane to my talk this afternoon is uh, the occurrence of myocarditis, um, and then uh, can have some more chronic complications from one or more of those, um, those etiologies. But for, for the purpose of my talk, we're really gonna focus more on sort of this transition from acute to convalescent and focusing on athletes or by extension to the military, what we refer to as tactical athletes. Next slide, please. Uh, so again, early on in the pandemic, uh, it was recognized that myocarditis uh, could occur in patients with COVID-19. And that was a concern for athletes in particular, because we know that myocarditis is a, a leading cause of sudden death in athletes after conditions like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or anomalous coronary artery. So early on in the pandemic, uh, various professional organizations published some guidance on how to evaluate athletes following COVID-19 infection. And uh, the diagnostic tools we use are, are nothing new. They include a good history and physical cardiac biomarkers, EKG and echocardiogram. Next slide, please. And again, multiple return, so-called return to play algorithms have been developed and uh, updated as recently as this, uh, this fall. Uh, there's been uh, algorithms published in the American, uh, British and European cardiology literature. The ones I'm gonna focus on today are, are mostly from the American literature. Uh, but they, they, the guidance really depends on uh, the patient's age, the severity of their COVID-19 infection, and the, the presence of any uh, uh, symptoms following infection. Um, the testing, again, uh, right, according to the most recent guidance, really focused on athletes who suffered from moderate or severe COVID-19 infection, those who had asymptomatic or mild uh, it really, the, the guidance recommends no additional cardiac testing. Uh, but if testing is indicated, again, it starts with a troponin, electrocardiogram, and echocardiogram. You've probably seen in the, even in the lay press some, uh, some stories about the use of cardiac MRI in athletes. And again, that really should be reserved for those who've had abnormalities on uh, ECG, troponin, or echo and really should be performed at um, centers of excellence with experience using cardiac MRI, particularly in athletes. And for the American return to, to play algorithms, there's, there's three separate ones, one for high school athletes, one for adult competitive athletes, and another for recreational master athletes. Next slide, please. This is the algorithm for adult competitive athletes. And as you can see, it's a fairly busy algorithm, but you can simplify it by breaking it down into sort of four separate algorithms. So on the far left, you have those with uh, asymptomatic COVID-19. And again, uh, generally are not going to recommend any additional cardiac testing 
in those patients and they can gradually return to training and eventually competition. Uh, those with mild symptoms, again, typically are not going to warrant additional cardiac testing, but those who've had moderate COVID-19 and those with severe COVID-19 are the ones where we want to focus and consider additional testing. And hopefully those who've had severe COVID-19 have been hospitalized, have already had some cardiac testing during their hospital stay, but if not, probably warrant testing during their fo outpatient follow-up. Next slide, please. So in terms of use of cardiac troponin, the, the um, current guidance recommends using high sensitivity cardiac troponin T. Uh, if this is not available, then can consider using an earlier generation troponin, uh, but recognizing that there are no established reference, range, reference ranges for athletes. And we also know that troponin can be released after prolonged or strenuous exercise. So recommendation is not to not measure troponin with, within 24 to 48 hours of exercise. Again, in your post COVID-19 patients, hopefully they haven't resumed exercise already. And so that's not a concern. Uh, in terms of EKG, um, it's a widely available tool. Unfortunately, it has a low sensitivity and specificity for diagnosis of things like myocarditis. The other thing we know about EKGs in athletes is they, they have a high prevalence of anomalies and uh, that can, historically, that can lead to uh, over-testing in athletes. But uh, things that you might be looking for in particular on ECG that could be indicators of underlying myocarditis would be complex ventricular ectopy or arrhythmias, ST segment or T wave changes that are new from baseline EKG, a new left bundle branch block or new atrioventricular block. Next slide, please. As I mentioned, we know that athletes have uh, commonly will have some anomalies on ECGs. Thankfully, we have international recommendations for interpretation of ECG. And this figure is taken from the most recent recommendations, which are from 2017. So if you are uh, obtaining ECG and uh, interpreting it in a young athletic patient, it's helpful to have these guidelines uh, readily available to help you determine whether a finding is truly abnormal or maybe borderline and whether or not additional evaluation is uh, recommended. Next slide, please. In terms of cardiac imaging, again, uh, echo is gonna be first line and things we might be looking for in the post COVID-19 uh, infected athletes would be things like left ventricular systolic or diastolic dysfunction uh, right ventricular dilatation or systolic dysfunction, uh, evidence of pericardial disease with an effusion or pericardial thickening, all of those would be red flags for potential um, myocardial or pericardial um, effects from COVID-19. And if the echo is abnormal, then that may warrant a follow-on cardiac MRI. Uh, the other thing, next slide, please. The other thing we know about athletes uh, with cardiac imaging is particularly those who have been training and competing for many years, performing high volumes of uh, uh, vigorous exercises, we expect to see some uh, structural changes in their heart. So it's, it's good to know that uh, when you're interpreting their echocardiogram or cardiac MRI. And thankfully, again, we have some international recommendations 
that provide some norms for different types of athletes. And those were updated just last summer during the COVID-19 um, pandemic by the published in the Journal of the American Society of Echocardiography. So again, those are, are easily available and the Europeans have a similar, um, similar guidelines in their literature. Next slide, please. So what do you do about the patient, the, the athlete who did suffer myocarditis secondary to COVID-19? Well, the first thing is they should not participate in any competitive sport uh, while there's evidence of active inflammation. And that's a recommendation regardless of their age, gender, or whether or not they have normal or abnormal left ventricular systolic function. And you can consider returning them to training and competition uh, after three to six months uh, prior to doing so, recommend that you repeat an echocardiogram, obtain a 24-hour Holter monitor, and probably perform an exercise ECG test. Next slide, please. Uh, if their uh, follow-up testing is normal, including cardiac biomarkers, echocardiogram, Holter monitor, and ECG stress test, then it is reasonable to return them to training and eventually competition. And uh, whether or not you need to obtain a cardiac MRI, and if you did obtain a cardiac MRI and it was uh, abnormal, it's really unclear whether you need to repeat the cardiac MRI prior to re resuming training and competition. Maybe that's something that will we'll gain greater insights as um, we, we obtain more data and longer follow-up in uh, athletes affected by COVID-19. Next slide, please. Uh, the next two slides are just examples of uh, some recommendations for uh, gradual return to training and competition. Uh, both of these are actually from the British literature, uh, but you can see this is sort of a six stage approach and each stage has recommendations for what type of exercise to perform, uh, what percent max heart rate to uh, attain, duration of exercise, um, so this is, is one approach that you could uh, use with your athletes and even your avid exercisers. I think something like this is, is uh, pretty uh, user-friendly for those patients who uh, have had COVID-19 and are eager to get back to regular exercise. Next slide, please. This is another example, a more recent example um, from just this month uh, published in British Medical Journal and a slightly different, but similar approach of sort of a five phase approach. And instead of using percent heart rate, they recommend using the uh, perceived rating of perceived exertion, RPE or the so-called Borg scale. Again, these are just two examples of what's been published in, in the literature as recommendations for how you help your athletes gradually return to training and eventually competition. Next slide, please. Uh, I think we'll have questions uh, later in the talk, but again, here's my email address. If, uh, if you have any questions you'd like to direct to me. Um, and then also the subsequent uh, slides list all the references, which are uh, publicly available. Um, I think just about every COVID-19 related uh, cardiology paper is available free online, uh, as well as all the images I showed. Uh, all of those are readily available online. I'll go on mute and stand by for questions. Thank you. Thank you so I'd much. I'd like to ask a question of Dr. Westman, if you don't mind, for the audience. 
Uh, Dr. Westman, that was an excellent presentation. Uh, again, this is Dr. Ely. I have uh, been talking to some people who have been doing research protocols in athletes right now with cardiac MRIs, and I think that the rate is around 5% of myocarditis being found. Uh, can you comment on that? And is that a number that, that you have found in other studies? And uh, that doesn't mean 5% symptomatic, but 5% showing myocarditis on cardiac MRIs. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ely. That's a great question. Uh, it's sort of a, a hot topic in cardiology. I'll confess I'm not a cardiac imager, uh, but I've been involved in, in discussions with some of my military cardiology colleagues who are, uh, and a lot of concern about some of the, the studies or case reports that have been published using cardiac MRI, starting with the German study uh, that wasn't specifically in athletes, was just in, in uh, you know, COVID-19 survivors. And that was published back in the summertime. More recently, we've had a series of, of small studies in athletes, including uh, one from Vanderbilt uh, University, which I think is probably the, the best of the studies I've seen thus far using cardiac MRI. But there was one from Ohio State, one from Wisconsin. Um, and, and yes, most of those have shown uh, a low uh, incidence of myocarditis by cardiac MRI criteria in the athletes, again, on, on the order of maybe two to 4%. Um, and for most of these cardiac MRI studies with athletes, most of the athletes are either asymptomatic or had mild symptoms, really didn't have any significant cardiopulmonary symptoms that uh, might've led to a cardiac MRI for clinical purposes. So that's one of the other um, concerns about the cardiac MRIs. Maybe there's some exuberance to, to get that study when clinically uh, there wasn't a real strong indication to do so. But it does seem to be a low incidence of myocarditis on the cardiac MRIs. And the nice thing about the Vanderbilt study is they included um, sort of age and sport matched uh, controls for comparison. And they saw that some of the cardiac MRI abnormalities that were seen in in other studies of athletes, when you included athletic controls, you could find those same abnormalities. So um, again, that may lower some of the exuberance for using cardiac MRI in athletes, but um, thankfully it seems to be a low incidence of true myocarditis in athletes who've had COVID-19, over. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so much. So, Let's jump a little bit into some of the clinical symptoms and how some of the things that we're seeing with COVID-19 um, compared to the things that we've seen in patients after surviving critical illness uh, in the pre-COVID-19 era. And is long COVID really different as compared to uh, post-intensive care syndrome? So Jenna, I'd like to start with you because in the spectrum of patients who are developing COVID-19, so we have the asymptomatic, mild uh, patients with mild symptoms who are not really getting hospitalized. And we're seeing uh, even before it uh, it was published in literature, we started seeing some descriptions in popular uh, press and media about long COVID. So could you please talk uh, talk to us a little bit about what are those symptoms that you're, that you're seeing? And uh, are these any different as compared to other uh, post-viral syndromes? Absolutely. No, I'm happy to. And I, I think it's a really interesting dichotomy to make and to investigate further. And so largely what we've been seeing across 
patient populations, particularly those with long COVID symptoms, like you had said. These are individuals who, in their initial manifestations, had very acute case, uh, mild cases in their acute phases. So really patients who were not hospitalized, um, many of whom self-managed at home without seeking care from the medical system. Um, I would argue the larger majority of those who did not require supplemental oxygen or any other types of interventions. Um, and thereby after uh, following their acute infection started developing the long COVID symptoms. And so what we've seen in that population um, largely includes uh, post-exertional malaise. Uh, we're seeing fatigue um, significantly out of proportion to exertion. Uh, we're seeing manifestations of autonomic dysfunction uh, or what represent very similar to autonomic dysfunction without uh, signs and symptoms consistent with pure dysautonomia. Uh, so patients with inconsistent heart rate variability, um, presentations of dizziness uh, not provoked by positional change or anything that we might suspect. Um, I do think that we can draw parallels and we can definitely ask what is the biggest difference between patients who might have post-intensive care syndrome or those who had perhaps more uh, significant or severe acute infections versus those with uh, long-call COVID. And I think while there are some similarities as far as things like fatigue are concerned, I think the extraneous uh, symptoms such as that, again, post-exertional malaise really is one of the differentiating factors. Um, as well as the symptom exacerbation. So we found that individuals with long COVID, um, their symptom exacerbation in and of itself is extremely sensitive. Um, and when we are seeing symptom exacerbations, those exacerbations are quite severe. So as opposed to a mild increase in symptoms um, consistent with exertion, we're seeing a mass increase in symptoms without consistency toward uh, the exertion for which they might be going through. And we're seeing these symptoms demonstrated during activities of daily living um, through regular functional mobility. So not necessarily anything that we would expect to really flare their symptoms up. So I think that's where the largest difference is. Great. Thank you, Jenna. And a follow-up question for, for Dylan. Uh, there's a question from our audience about this persistent sinus tachycardia, uh, which Jenna also alluded to that there might be a flavor for dysautonomia. What would your recommendation be for those patients who have this kind of persistent tachycardia or intermittent tachycardia? Should they be undergoing any kind of further workup or, uh, or should we just be waiting and monitoring them? Sure. Thank you. I I think um, probably unknown right now what the best uh, approach or treatment would be, but I think for a patient who just has persistent sinus tachycardia, uh, certainly confirming that with ECG, if they haven't had an echo to that point in their the course of their COVID-19, I would certainly obtain an echocardiogram to make sure they don't have evidence of an underlying cardiomyopathy or... Um, you know, left or right ventricular dysfunction. Um, if that was normal, you know, consideration of longer term uh, ambulatory ECG monitoring with, um, you know, a Holter monitor or a longer uh, patch type monitor uh, might be warranted just to see, um, again, to document what their sort of the heart rate variability is, uh, would be reasonable. Um, and if all of that turned out normal, um, you know, if you look at the return to play algorithm, uh, that's where maybe you would consider uh, obtaining a cardiac MRI if, you know, patient remains symptomatic, but all their prior testing had been normal, uh, then you could consider a cardiac MRI. 
but I think at least uh, ECG, if it hadn't been done, an echocardiogram, if it hadn't been done, would be very reasonable. And then consideration of a monitor for longer, um, doc, you know, documenting their heart rate and a heart rhythm for a longer duration over. Great, thank you. Well, so let's move from that that spectrum where the patients our patients are not sick enough uh, and they're self-monitoring at home to the critically ill patients in our ICUs. So from the pre-COVID-19 era, everything that we know about post-intensive care syndrome and delirium, how is, how is this post-COVID syndrome different in, uh, in ICU survivors with COVID-19? And uh, how is this delirium different in COVID-19 patients or is it the same? Excellent question, an important topic. I think that what we're witnessing right now is really a resurgence of acute brain dysfunction of epic proportions in critical care to the point that this is a major public health outbreak. And it's a really an epidemic within the pandemic of COVID. I'll be specific. If you look at the rates of delirium in ICU patients who, let's call them real ICU patients, where they're actually really sick and not just a post-op patient, uh, we saw rates of delirium in the 70% range for about 15, 20 years once we started modern day measurements with the CAM-ICU and the delirium screening checklist until around 2015. So from late 90s to around 2015, and it was an incredibly consistent number. From 2015 onwards, after we had the advent of the AE2F bundle or the ABCDEF bundle, which for those on the call not familiar is a six step safety protocol that we use at the bedside, basically to wake people up every day to see if they can tolerate being awake, do a spontaneous breathing trial, get them off the blower, and then monitor them for delirium and try to address deliriogenic factors and incorporate their family in the care, et cetera. We saw delirium drop very nicely by about a third into the 40s. So delirium was very consistent in, in many multicenter clinical trials and in cohort studies down in the 40% range for the last five years. We just published a paper last week in Lancet Respiratory. And so for those who haven't seen that yet, it's called the COVID-D study, C-O-V-I-D-D, COVID delirium. And it's 2,100 patients from 14 countries, around 60, 70 ICUs. And what we found was that out of 21 days, they only had five days on average free of delirium and coma. So just a gargantuan amount of acute brain dysfunction. And I was gonna share my screen and show you the causes of this. It's kind of an easy to remember way of thinking about it. Uh, let me share. And you can see now this F COVID slide. Can you see it? Okay, so there are six major causes of COVID related delirium. And this guy is holding his head. It's such an anguish, such a, such a point of human suffering when the brain doesn't work. Remember what the person is dealing with. They're dealing with the inability to communicate what's on their mind. They're dealing with nightmarish thoughts, hallucinations and delusions, but most importantly, the inability to pay attention and communicate. And when that happens, then they don't get to communicate with their loved ones. And then we find a true catastrophe in their desire to live. And so I think a lot of these people are losing their will to live and it's contributing to the mortality. So these six causes, it spells F-COVID. You know, we hate COVID, so F-COVID. 
and it's family isolation, it's clotting problems and oxygenation issues, it's viral invasion, immobilization, and drugs like benzos. In the COVID-D study, and then I'm going to stop talking and see if there are other questions in the chat box or maybe from the panelists. In the COVID-D study, I think there were two major take-home messages. One was only five days free of delirium and coma out of 21. Second take-home take message. The two most robust statistical predictors of this acute brain dysfunction were overuse of benzos and underuse of families. So when we overuse the sedation for many days on end, the family can't communicate, the loved one can't communicate. So we have this, this disastrous circumstance of no involvement with family members. And again, the person losing their will to live. So these are things luckily, and, and I'm very thankful, these are modifiable. We are all doing our best, but we have to keep tweaking our best to make it be better. If we can get back to where we were, to the, the, the appropriate way of sedating people and keeping them comfortable, while at the same time not overdoing it. And each ICU, each clinician, each of you, we have many people on this call, are gonna have to figure out what is your best and how do you change tomorrow what we did last month to get us in the right place for these patients. Let me stop talking there, Neha, and see if anybody has any thoughts or comments. Thank you, Wes. You bring up such an important point as we're beginning to, see, beginning to see wave after wave of, of COVID-19. And there's, there's this whole wave of uh, COVID-19 survivors that, uh, that we're all going to see in our clinics and in our hospitals and getting readmitted with different kinds of problems. How do we monitor our patients and prepare them for success to stay outside the hospitals? And for those patients who were never hospitalized, how do we ensure that we identify the, the longitudinal problems that they're developing that's going to uh, bring them to our hospitals or to our clinics? So let's, let's go over that spectrum of uh, monitoring these patients after their uh, acute COVID-19 phase, uh, phase is done and they've survived their acute COVID-19 phase. So Jenna, starting first with you, uh, for patients who are not hospitalized and now they're experiencing all these symptoms, how are, what, is, uh, what is your sense in literature for how long should these, be, these patients be monitored? What monitoring modalities should, um, should we consider in those kinds of patients? Absolutely. And I, I think really the advent of COVID-19 has really taught us the importance of monitoring patients outside of the hospital system, whether they had been admitted and then subsequently discharged or who were not potentially uh, candidates to be admitted to the health system uh, for maybe more of those mild to moderate cases. And so our group uh, has largely implemented and investigated the use of remote patient monitoring, particularly for patients both with acute COVID infections and those thereby with subsequent long haul COVID. And so in the acute phases, what we found quite a bit of value in was um, a multitude and a multimodal approach for remote patient monitoring. And so uh, we have implemented and developed a phone-based application where our patients have been entering their daily symptoms. And then on the back end, that daily symptom information is tracked by a team of clinicians to identify clinical deterioration or changes in clinical presentation, hopefully before it becomes the point of a red flag. And so in the early stages, we quickly identified 
the common things that I think most of us had realized quite quickly were really important for clinical care. Things like consistently monitoring pulse oximetry, um, consistently monitoring temperature, consistently monitoring blood pressure, uh, and being by remotely monitoring those symptoms, again, we're starting to paint the picture of the patient's trajectory and recovery. Um, within that acute cohort, um, after approximately the six-week mark, we are seeing that those acute symptoms that we initially would have anticipated, again, those cardiorespiratory or cardiopulmonary manifestations, begin to resolve and improve. Um, but we have identified in a similar cohort, uh, after that six-week mark, about 10 to 15% of those patients are showing and essentially presenting with more of a long-haul presentation. Now, the efficacy of monitoring the long-haul presentation and the time frame for which we should be monitoring those uh, symptoms, I don't think is well established yet in the literature, and we can speak from our group's perspective uh, individually. Again, I, I don't think there is a clean time mark for that. Uh, but that being said, we are seeing this manifestation of long COVID symptoms significantly through the six-month mark. So these are individuals who are greater than six months out from their initial infection. So again, we're looking at from six weeks at its earliest manifestation all the way greater than the six to eight months uh, post. Um, I do anticipate that the need for continuing to monitor those patients, uh, particularly those both, again, in the acute phase, but also in the long phase, um, is incredibly important for our understanding of how the progression should develop and what we anticipate. Um, different from the acute COVID patients, um, in long-haul patients, I think monitoring of things such as heart rate variability, um, we are still monitoring pulse oximetry in spite of the fact that we'd anticipate it to be more stable in the longer phase. Um, I do think some of those physiological parameters are really quite important, again, uh, for understanding the patient's progress and their recovery, but more importantly, the manifestation and just progression of the long COVID uh, or PACS subset in and of itself. Thank you, Jenna. And of course, with a lot of these longitudinal monitoring studies across the world, uh, we are going to be able to understand more uh, what that trajectory is going to look like for different symptoms, as well as that duration. What is the minimum duration that we should be monitoring these patients for, although they were not sick enough to get hospitalized? Uh, Dylan, as a follow-up question for you, for patients who have po uh, pre-existing uh, cardiac uh, comorbidities and they have hypertension, they're a vasculopath, uh, they, they had previous coronary artery disease and now they've developed COVID-19, and they are an avid, um, you know, uh, they, they exercise quite a bit. So what what has been recommended in literature for, for those kinds of patients who are not, not our pro athletes, but for those individuals who have been exercising and now they've had COVID-19 and they have pre-existing pre cardiac comorbidities, what is being recommended or what are you seeing in literature for those patients? Sure, thank you. Again, I think for, for that cohort of patients, it's, it's similar, it would be similar to the athletes. We just don't have, uh, you know, a large volume or a large cohort of those patients and don't have enough longitudinal data. But uh, I think that in terms of the clinical management, it would be, um, we'd approach it the same as we would, you know, for a patient who has pre-existing uh, cardiac disease, whether that's coronary disease, heart failure, valvular disease, something that we're already treating them, monitoring them for, and then they suffer some acute illness, you know, it may warrant reassessment of their, 
ventricular function with another echocardiogram or, um, you know, if it, adjustments needed to be made to their medications for heart failure, it just, I think sort of routine follow-up and reassessment of their new baseline cardiac function, and then a gradual return to, um, more physical activity or exercise if they're avid exercisers. Again, I think those, those last couple slides I showed that had some proposed um, stage or phase-based uh, approaches to resuming exercise, I think you could easily apply those to any patient, not just your competitive athlete. And um, I didn't show the return to play algorithm for the master's athletes, but I think you could uh, adopt that as well for your older uh, patient who has pre-existing uh, cardiac disease before, you know, sort of clearing them to resume exercise. Uh, so just sort of extending that to that, that cohort of patients that aren't maybe athletes in the classic sense, but more, had been more active prior to their um, COVID-19 infection or, or disease. Great. Thank you, Dylan. And I'd like just make you, yes, things. please, Wes, go ahead. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's just get a, a 10,000 foot view of what this is looking like here. So for the audience, if this is the umbrella of long COVID uh, or, or, um, or long haulers, most of these people who have long standing symptoms from COVID were never really, really sick, but they are still getting ongoing nagging problems with thought process, foggy brain, GI symptoms, diarrhea, um, maybe a mild myocarditis that they don't even notice much about, et cetera. Um, and I love what Jenna said. She's a true expert. She's giving us some incredibly high tier data here and knowledge. So Jenna, thank you so much for, for being here. It's, it's really, really edifying. Uh, there is a group of people in the umbrella of long COVID long hauler who have PICs. Okay. Mm -hmm. These were the sick as crap ICU patients in the hospital who leave with what you already knew 10 years ago as post-intensive care syndrome. So everybody who's a COVID, let me say it another way. Everybody who's a COVID patient with PICS has long haulers. They have long COVID. They have the worst kind of long hauler, long COVID. They've got acquired dementia, not just some brain fog, but an absolute dementia, two, three standard deviations off of what their predicted age and education adjusted norm is. They've got depression to beat the band in one third of them at least. They've got PTSD. They've got um, so mental health, cognition, and they've got a tremendous problem neck down with their muscles and nerves, a, a, an acquired myosensory neuropathy. So again, people with PICs after the ICU who had COVID They've got long haulers to beat the band. But then the reason long haulers is way bigger than just the hospitalized patients is these outpatients. And I'd like to know what uh, Jenna has to, can you teach us anything more about that distinction and about what you see as the public health problem? My world is mostly about PICS related long haulers and we're doing large cohort studies to analyze the degree of abnormalities of PICS in comparison to non-COVID and pre-COVID mm -hmm. pre pandemic but teach us what's on your mind about this, this big umbrella, partially ICU hospitalized, and then large, large numbers of lesser outpatient. I think the idea and the analogy of the umbrella is spot on. Um, I think that for 
I would argue most of us in, in the medical field when COVID first hit, I think we all were anticipating some degree of picks to show up, right? We anticipated that there was this massive need and this massive group of individuals who were developing some really severe hospitalization needs. Um, particularly in that case, again, picks is kind of par for the course, we anticipate it. I think what definitely is the other end of the spectrum is those mild to moderate cases. Um, and arguably that is equally as important of a population to acknowledge. And I think the needs of that population have gone unmet for a significant period of time, just because it was not something that was on the healthcare radar. And so I think the bigger health crisis surrounding long haul, in addition to care for individuals who are coming out of a severe diagnosis of acute COVID with development of PICS, is the need for long haul COVID patients who are having these genuine symptoms to be acknowledged and cared for within the health system. Um, and so I think that for those of us on the provider end of things, really understanding um, that many of their workups are going to come back not suspecting. Um, their initial workups, we're not suspecting what we're seeing in individuals. Um, we definitely, all of our patients in our cohort have gone through cardiac clearance, have gone through pulmonary clearance who are coming back and we're sending out to neurology and, and all of these workups that we would have anticipated to show something more daunting or more luminous are, are actually coming back okay. And so that really poses the question as to, well, what's going on? Um, so I think just as a medical community, as we continue to understand the spectrum of long COVID, like you had said, there, are, there is this very large spectrum of presentation. I think that in and of itself is really going to be what's most telling in the future. Thank you, Jenna. And Wes has a follow-up question for you now. So this analogy of the umbrella, what, what we've been trying to do at the beginning of this, uh, uh, at the beginning of this webinar was to tease out, okay, you have the, the asymptomatic of patients with mild symptoms, and then you've got the moderate, and then you've got the severe, uh, severe COVID-19. Um, there's a lot of overlap between PICS and long COVID as you, as you outlined. There's pretty much, you're seeing the most severe kind of long COVID uh, encompassed within, within that spectrum of PICS. There were critical care recovery programs across the country and across the world. And now there are these new COVID-19 centers. These COVID-19 centers that different uh, hospitals and health systems have started, they're supposed to be like these multidisciplinary centers to cater to the, to the complex needs of COVID-19 patients. And in some respects, also try to coordinate the care for chronic disease processes if they've had long-standing cardiac conditions or pulmonary conditions, so on and so forth. So how do we, or is there, is there any suggestion in literature on how to distinguish between uh, the resources that were already available for critical care recovery, the resources that we need to put into place for these long haulers and this intersection set of picks and, uh, and long haulers? Yeah, right. Exactly. I think that we're, I think we're still at a place where we're all trying to sort through this. I'll tell you what, what's happening locally. Uh, so I'm at Vanderbilt University and we've had an ICU recovery center run by Dr. Carla Seven, S-E-V-I-N, and Dr. Jim Jackson, who's a, neuro, a, a neuropsychologist. So Carla is an intensivist and Jim is a neuropsychologist. And we have a PharmD in there, Dr. Joanna Stalling. She's an amazing uh, PharmD. And we have nurse practitioners and they they see ICU recovery patients. Basically, if you've had a, a couple of days of delirium, you've been on a ventilator, or you've been in shock, then you qualify for this clinic. And you come back and we take care of you for two to three weeks as you transition back into your 
uh, your, your primary care circumstances or longer, depending on what's going on. And we help you with neurocognitive deficits, mental health issues, physical issues, physical therapy, rehab, both cognitively and physical. And that's been our ICU recovery center. And you can read about that if you want on our website. It's just icudelirium.org for the audience, icudelirium.org. So that has now become, Neha, our COVID clinic. So Carla now runs a COVID clinic for, for long haulers. And we don't just see ICU patients in there. She gets referrals from people who are having a lot of long hauler symptoms who want to be seen. And sometimes they come from other states. Um, so that's our local adaption of this. Now, let's take a hospital, like I could name a few that are in my head, but I won't say them out loud, but who didn't have an ICU recovery center. They have newly realized, oh my gosh, these people are totally falling through the cracks. They are miserable. They're having their ongoing symptoms. We've got to do something for these people. So they've set up new clinics, which are just called COVID clinics. So we call ours an ICU recovery center, and it's, it's now acting as our COVID clinic. But there are some that didn't have that, and they just created a new COVID clinic for long haulers, period. And I would think that most of those are, are out, outpatients who didn't get hospitalized, but some of them clearly are the PICS-related long haulers. So those are my thoughts. I think that the whole country is grappling with how to handle this. And, um, you know, I have a, a bit of an extra bounce in my step today with a lot of hope about how we're handling things scientifically uh, with COVID and with masking and with science and re-entering the World Health Organization and lots of really great things uh, have, I have been hearing about all day long today. We have some wonderful physicians like uh, Dr. Atul Gwande is now on the president's panel for COVID. Um, Dr. Fauci has been, uh, of course, now he's going to be on the, the, the WHO panel. And so I think that they're all these leaders grappling with these issues. Um, I'd love to hear anything more that, that you might know. But those are my thoughts about the different variations of ways people are handling things right now. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Wes. And I, I almost feel like that analogy for what was happening earlier in the pandemic, where we did not really have a lot of evidence base, we were still trying to figure out what we were dealing with. And then some way midway through the through the pandemic last year, we realized we've got to stick to the basics and we've got to do what we've known for the past 10, 20 years as we're taking care of these patients. And the same thing sort of translates into this longitudinal recovery phase. And this coordinated, concerted effort that needs to happen globally so we can start preparing and putting in place those resources that are needed to take care of these survivors, not just for a few days, few weeks, but for months and years to, co to come. And particularly those patients uh, that have pre-existing chronic conditions, are some of these conditions going to get accelerated because of COVID-19 and long-haul long COVID? And both, uh, all three of you have kind of alluded to uh, this uh, evasive pathophysiology of what we're, what we're seeing. So any thoughts about why this is happening to COVID-19 patients? Uh, is this lingering, lingering virus, uh, viral particle circulating, recirculation, uh, immunogenic responses? So why is this happening? Jenna? Any of you could get started, yes. Okay, I, I think that Okay, so this is another important concept. This disease is not qualitatively different than sepsis. It's viral sepsis, but it is quantitatively different than our previous sepsis patients. For example, it's a lot longer of a disease. It's still ARDS, but we, and by the way, there's lots of ink been spilled on is this ARDS or not. 
it's ARDS and it's sepsis, but it, it's a, it's a three week illness instead of a, a five to 10 day illness. So that's quite, that's quantitatively different. The, was there in 2000, in the year 2000 or 1990, was there vascular involvement in sepsis? Of course, of course there was. That was the entire reason that we did our prowess study. I was one of the New England Journal authors on prowess, which looked at activated protein C because we knew that it was a disease of inflammation and vasculopathy, coagulopathy. Um, but as I said, it's a quant, it's a quantitatively different disease. So was there vascular involvement already in sepsis? Yes. Is it more now? You bet. It's a massive amount of vascular involvement. So why are we getting long haulers? I think that that the amount of of endothelial disruption, microclotting, and inflammatory storm is greater in this disease. So that's why it's not qualitatively different, but it's quantitatively different. And we're seeing a a more profound uh, example of the same things we already knew happened, and and we're seeing it, you know, in space. Uh, there's a question from a couple of attendees about um, the lack of resources. So, if if there are no post-COVID centers or there are no critical care recovery centers, what is the role of telehealth? And uh, uh, Jenna, Dylan, Wes, you could take this in in sequence, or if one of you would like to chime in. What, what are the telehealth resources uh, available? And if people do not have locally available COVID-19 centers, how should they be tackling this longitudinal problem? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to jump in and, and speak from our end. Um, I think if COVID-19 has put anything else aside from everything in the spotlight really is the need for telehealth services, um, whether it is for patients who just don't have access because of their local region um, or just the normal barriers that patients who seek telehealth care might be facing. Um, I think that the key with post and long haul COVID care is really the necessity for an interdisciplinary team. And I think a multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary team approach. Um, I don't think this is a one size fits all, which really is the necessity for working together. Um, and I think uh, we had alluded to earlier, really this need for uh, individuals on the medical front, um, individuals on the rehabilitation and physical therapy front um, to really address the needs of those patients. And so telehealth, I think, serves a really unique purpose in the fact that many of our intervention and our care models are based on uh, collaborative care, many of which can be done via telehealth. Um, I do think for patients who don't have access to a COVID center or a a long-haul COVID recovery center in their immediate region, definitely can seek resources from those of us who are on both the clinical and the research fronts trying to provide those resources to patients largely. Um, And again, I think that the interventions that might be supplementary and in the patient's plan of care can be successfully completed over telehealth. And so that definitely is a great place for it. Thank you so much. And several questions about screening tools. Uh, Wes, um, there are a couple of attendees who are asking about screening tools for cognitive dysfunction after for the critically ill uh, COVID-19 patient. Any preferences? There are some pretty uh, easy to use five to 10 minute screening tools for cognitive impairment. And we actually have a paper on that. We published it in, in, in uh, intensive care medicine over 15 years ago, but all of the, the conversation there is still relevant. So if you want to reference, look up Jim Jackson um, and Sharon Gordon and my name. So if you put in Gordon S, Jackson J, and then Ely EW, you'd find this paper, which reviews all these ways to cognitively screen ICU survivors. 
but you could do it anything from a from a trails B to a clocks test. Uh, there are lots of three to five minute screening tools that you can find out there, which are which are super helpful as as screening tools. Um, I also think that uh, that you have local probably resources where you can go find if if you if you, have, you know of no one else, you could even go to speech therapy who do cognitive rehab after stroke, and you could find some of your local talent to help you figure this out. I, I wanted to point out, by the way, that there's a hand raised by Trudy, uh, Trudy Shady. And if, if she really wants to say something, she might have to put something in the chat box because I don't think we can open up the lines. We, we asked about that. We, we don't have the ability to open the line. So if Trudy wants to write us something, we'd love to hear what you're asking. Great. And I know Thank we only you. have four minutes left, maybe five minutes. So uh, what else do you want us to cover now, Aneha? All right. So my, my next question was going to be about prevention and uh, treatments. So what are some of the ongoing trials for your specific patient populations that our uh, healthcare community, patients and families should be aware, aware of? Anything exciting that, uh, that's available for long-haul COVID? Any trials that, uh, that we should be aware of? Jenna, Dylan, and Wes. Sure. So uh, from the outpatient perspective for individuals with long COVID, um, really from a prevention standpoint, uh, we have not gotten to that point from an evidence place. I think that this is something that we're still actively investigating to number one, better understand the pathophysiology on the back end as to what's causing it so that we can thereby intervene earlier on. And I, I definitely echo the idea of this pro-inflammatory concept that's definitely mediating the symptom presentation. Uh, that being said, on the proactive end of addressing uh, long COVID as it stands, uh, we really are finding again, the need for a multidisciplinary approach. Uh, our group has largely, and I think the literature stands to support the need to draw from like diagnoses to better understand interventions. And so I think that when we think along the lines of uh, conservative management, um, because again, from a pharmacological standpoint, we have not identified anything that has been successful in addressing it. Um, we definitely draw to things like aerobic exercise, graded aerobic exercise, similar to some of the aerobic recommendations that might've been recommended for our athletes. Um, but again, in this cohort, we're finding that symptom exacerbation is a significant concern. And so graded aerobic exercise, submaximal aerobic exercise, sub 60% of an age predicted heart rate max with a gradual return. Um, we are also looking at the um, potential and the impacts of things like breathwork exercise. Uh, we're finding a lot of these patients, even those without pure uh, cardiopulmonary manifestations in the acute phase are presenting in a hyperventilatory state thereby after. So we are in implementing things like breath work exercises with an em just emphasis on active cycle of breathing, nasal breathing, um, to really try to mediate that again conservatively. Um, and additionally, working on supportive care, things like neuropsychology have been incredibly important. Um, from our neuropsychology assessments, we've found that, you know, the typical neuropsych battery of a two-hour assessment is far too rigorous for these patients, far too symptom uh, concerning. So really identifying those key points of care, but I think overarchingly, the multidisciplinary approach really is what we're finding, again, from an evidence standpoint to be most successful. Great, thank you. And Dylan, any clinical trials that uh, that are on the horizon for post-COVID-19 myocarditis? Not uh, that I'm aware of. Again, just like these cardiac MRI studies, I imagine they're um, smaller studies ongoing at individual um, 
university medical centers, you know, hopefully, um, you know, for example, the NCAA Division One football season just ended, and um, you know, some teams had full seasons, others had shortened seasons. Uh, many teams had to cancel games. So I'm hopeful that some of those universities, or maybe they'll they'll pool their data and, and publish um, sort of more outcomes data uh, of you know the effects of screening methods they had and um, whether there were any um, more serious cardiovascular complications amongst the athletes, but I'm not aware of any. Um, in the military, we do have some longitudinal studies going on in our service members. Again, the vast majority of those um, service members have had mild or asymptomatic COVID-19. Um, and again, those, are, those kinds of studies are restricted to our current um, sailors, Marines, airmen, soldiers, et cetera. Um, so I'm hopeful that at least from the DOD, we'll be able to publish some data in the coming months and years. But I think um, we're still in the, the data gathering um, phase of that over. Thank you. And Wes, there were at least three, three people who had submitted this question longitudinally for pulmonary fibrosis after a patient survived from COVID-19 ARDS. Uh, are there any, uh, any clinical trials that, uh, that we should be aware of? Uh, any role for uh, antifibrotic medications in those patients? Sure. And so in these closing moments, I'll, I'll address long-term lung and brain. Long-term brain is fast. I just want to make sure that people realize, encourage others to do what they love to do cognitively. If you're going to go exercise your bicep and lift weights, you're going to exercise that brain similarly. Uh, Sudoku, if you like math, Scrabble, if you like words, you know, um, bananagrams, whatever it is that, that's going to do, that's going to get your brain moving because your brain is constantly undergoing neuroplasticity. And we now know in ICU patients that years after the ICU injury, they can get that brain back. So remember that. Regarding the lungs, there is a, a, a tremendous amount of literature coming out about COP or cryptogenic organizing pneumonia. Think about a keloid scar. A, 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 an injury happens, the body overreacts, creates this piled on amount of scar tissue. That is absolutely happening in some of our COVID patients. I've had patients myself come back in a month later, two months later on the ventilator and die. Uh, we, we know this is happening. We used to call it BOOP. Uh, bronchiolitis of obliterans organizing pneumonia. Now it's most commonly called COP, cryptogenic organizing pneumonia. It's essentially like an initial viral injury and then weeks of calming down. And then the body just keeps on going and piles on this keloid scar. And we suppress that with steroids most often, around 40 to 60 milligrams a day of prednisone uh, for up to six months, depending on the patient and the circumstance. Do we have trial data on this in COVID right now? No, we do not have those data. But it is a form of COP. We know a lot about COP over the last 30 years. And again, I don't think this is qualitatively different. I think it's quantitatively different. So I'm taking the clinical approach that I've always taken with organizing pneumonia before. And, uh, and in those patients that I'm pretty sure have that, we're giving, we're giving some steroids. But, but before you do that, you have to be very careful that you don't think the patient is actively infected with a super infection with bacteria or subsequent virus, et cetera, because you don't want to suppress the immune system if they actually need antibiotics or something like that. So that's my cautionary note. Absolutely. And are you planning a follow-up study to the COVID-D study to see how the 
changes in our sedation practices and the re-implementation of the, you know, A2F bundle have uh, brought us back uh, as a we pendulum emailed, swung back. We just back. emailed yesterday with our Spanish colleagues to, to, to do a follow-up for the COVID date. So we're hoping Fantastic. Awesome. So in the last sort of minute or two, uh, we can go a little over. I'm going to get closing thoughts from each one of you. So Jenna, let's get started. What can 2021, uh, what hope does 2021 bring for uh, COVID-19 long haulers? Well, I am choosing to be pleasantly optimistic on that. Um, I think there is a lot of hope for long haulers, largely as we start to understand, again, both the acute infection and more importantly, some of these long haul symptoms. I think that understanding the breadth of the spectrum of what we're dealing with is going to be the most important thing, but I choose to be optimistic. Fantastic. Dylan, closing thoughts? Uh, yes, I think for athletes, obviously the hope is that they can get back to more normal training and, and competition. Um, and a lot of that depends on more of the, the preventive measures in terms of the physical distancing and um, implementation of, of testing for the athletes and eventually vaccination for the athletes. So I think that's probably the, the biggest hope for the athletes. And again, thankfully, uh, based on the, the literature to date, the vast majority have asymptomatic or mild COVID-19. So they aren't the ones suffering from, uh, uh, very few of them that would be suffering from sort of these, these long hauler uh, scenarios. Thank you. Sure. And my, my last comment, so I want to bring up just one last thing that we haven't brought up at all, which is family involvement with your COVID patients. Just let's just all be aware of the emotional toll it takes on people when they are isolated from their family and loved ones and do everything we can to get hospital visitation back to normal as quickly as possible. And my, whenever you complain about something, you have to offer a solution. PPE works. If you put on gloves, a gown, a, a mask and a shield, they're not gonna get COVID. I mean, very rarely will they get COVID. That's how we've stayed protected this entire pandemic long so far. So let's figure out a way to provide these people a way to see their loved ones and the loved ones to see them so that they can have a humane and more dignified experience. Those are my closing thoughts. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been a fantastic discussion. And for all the attendees, thank you for your engagement. Thank you for uh, posting your questions to us. Of course, we're going to make this recording available uh, soon. It's going to take about a week or two. But uh, keep tuning in and we will be chatting some more about survivorship issues in COVID-19 in our subsequent webinars. Thank you. Have a wonderful evening. Bye, everybody.